This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you a mummer, she don't you. And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky in Texas. How's it going, Sky? It's good. How about you, Anthony? Oh, I cannot complain. Pulling my hair out a little bit? This story that I'm bringing today, I feel like I've aged writing this and researching this story. (laughs) So... I think we have some opposite problems, if I recall correctly, because I do believe you told me that you had 105 pages of newspaper articles, and I have exactly six documents to work with my lady today. (laughs) So it'll be a bit of a mixed episode. (laughs) Yeah. It's a a lot I have to go through. (laughs) But I think it's going to be entertaining. I think people are going to like it. I, I really hope so. Should we get started? Let's do it. All right. Who are you covering today, Sky? Okay. So today I am covering number 4693, Helen Hall. I mean, this isn't a warning, but this is, again, I had six documents and none of those (laughs) documents say exactly what she did. So this is going to be more probably context and some deep dives into some other stuff than it is about Helen herself. But... If you bear with me, I think it'll be an interesting episode. So, sources, inmate file, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, newspaper.com articles, ancestry records, and especially the Salmon City 1930 census, com, an online exhibit called Prohibition and Interactive History from the Mob Museum at mobmuseum.org. A Whoa, book where's titled, the Mob Museum? It's in Las Vegas. It's actually really cool. Oh. I've been there. What? Yeah. Oh, man. It's really neat. It's really wait. cool. Um, also, this I'll talk about the exhibition online, uh, the online exhibition about Prohibition. It is actually an incredible online exhibition. Like, when it comes to, like, museum studies and what people have been doing to, like, get things online, this is top-notch work. There's even a game that you can play where you, like, are running from the cops. It's really cool. <laughs> um, <sighs> so awesome. highly recommend. Mobmuseum.org. A book titled The War on Alcohol, Prohibition, and the Rise of the American State by Lisa McGurr. An article titled The Road to Prohibition in Idaho was a Bumpy One by Arthur Hart, which is a statesman article from 2017. And then another uh, article by Arthur Hart titled Idaho's 1916 Statewide Prohibition Led to Many Arrests for Alcohol. And that is a statesman article from 2020. And then just a few um, sort of background articles on Wikipedia. So... We don't really know anything about Helen Hall, except uh, what information that she gave on her intake form. And as we know, all of that information is self-reported. So 
Who knows if it's true? Um, so, given her vocation, according to the prosecuting attorney F.A. McCall, who said that she conducted, quote, a house of ill fame, end quote, it seems highly unlikely that Helen Hall is even her real name, to be quite honest with you. How do I know that? Well, I don't know that for sure, but there are only two mentions of Helen Hall in all of Salmon, Idaho, and none of them have to do with her own crime. In fact, the two mentions of Helen Hall actually have to do more with another woman's crime. Her name was Marguerite Boggin. That crime actually happened in Helen's house of ill repute. I will cover that story in the next couple seasons. It is it is pretty interesting. But that, like, in newspapers, that's the only way that she's mentioned, is that this Marguerite Boggins crime took place in her, like, house. There's no mention of Helen Hall just as an everyday citizen of, of Salmon, which only had about 1,300 people at the time. I could not find any signs of her in Salmon after. She's not even listed in the 1930 census in Salmon. That could be a result of her job, but with such a small population, it seems unlikely that she would have gone unnoticed or uncounted by census takers. So, <laughs> there is at least a dozen Helen Halls born in Missouri with birth dates between 1897 and 1900 on just page one of Ancestry, uh, much less trying to dig into multiple pages of trying to find Helen Halls born in Missouri between 1897 and 1900. And a name like Helen Hall is just so common that it is almost near impossible to figure out where she would have gone if she didn't return to Salmon after her time in prison. So what we do know about Helen Hall, or what it is that Helen tells us about herself, is that she claimed to be born in Joplin, Missouri. She was 34 years old upon her intake, so born probably around 1898. She was divorced, but she listed her occupation as housewife. So the question becomes, was Hall her maiden name? Was it her married name? Was it her name at all? Again, searching for Helen Hall in Missouri is near impossible. Searching for Helen Hall in Idaho is less impossible, but all of the Helen Halls that I found, their details didn't match up with what Helen self-reported in the intake form. If she was born in Missouri, when did she move to Idaho? Did she move anywhere else in between? I genuinely do not know. That's in my notes in all caps. I do not know. I was so <laughs> frustrated by page one of my outline because I could not find anything on her. What do we do at this point? Well, what I did is I went line by line in that census to see if I could find any details of anyone who matched up with what she gave. So what I'm going to talk about now is not verifiably her, but this will give you sort of the ideas of the links I went to to find out anything about her and, you know, some potential leads on maybe who she really was. It seems reasonable to me that if she owned a house of ill repute, which is usually, for those of you who have not figured it out, is usually language to mean like a house of prostitution or a brothel. So if she owned, you know, one of those, she probably lived in Salmon for longer than just the year, just like between, you know, 30 and 1932 when she was arrested. So that means she should have appeared in the 1930 census. Helen Hall is not listed on that 1930 census. So again, that sort of leads me to believe that that's not her real name. Again, it is possible that she managed to avoid census takers, but it seems unlikely, so we have to get creative. So, again, I went line by line through that 1930 census, which thankfully Salmon City was very small. I think there were 16 pages total. 
So first I looked for anyone whose birthplace was listed as Missouri, and I did find several women who were in that mid-30 age range, but they were most often married and their ages didn't match up with what Helen claimed. So the next, I pretty much looked for anyone between the ages of 30 and 34. I still found very few leads, but there were some potential women. I kind of felt like I was maybe closing in on something. So then next, I decided to look for women who were heads of household, especially if there were other women living with them, because oftentimes what you'll find in censuses when there are sort of quote-unquote houses of ill repute, that means that there's sort of a group of women living together, and they're, so there'll be the head of households who's, you know, her occupation will be listed as like boarder or something, and then the rest of the people in the household will be listed as like roomers or lodgers, and so that's a lot of times how you can sort of find these brothels if they are listed in censuses at all. So I thought if I could find a group of women living together, that could be huge. Like that could be her, but I didn't find any. So (laughs) there were several women who had sort of details that were mm, maybe close enough that they could have been her. And then as I would sort of go through these women, I would find one detail that would just knock them out of contention. So eventually using all of these methods, I think I came up with one woman that could possibly be her. But let me be very clear. I am not saying for sure that this is Helen Hall. I do not want you to like, if, you know, the person who I'm saying might be her has family who listens to this and knows for a fact that this person was not Helen Hall. Again, I'm not trying to say that that for sure is. This is just the person who I think sort of perhaps... most closely matches the details that we have about Helen. You know, Helen could have just been really good at avoiding authorities, and Helen Hall could actually be her name, and she just never appears in any records. But based on my assumptions, there is a chance that I think this person could be her. This main person that I think could be her is a woman named Ivy Joplin. Now, there are, of course, some things that don't fully match up, but I'm very intrigued by that name Joplin, because she claimed to be born in Joplin, Missouri. In my search for Helen Hall in Missouri, of all the Helen Halls that I found, sort of between that that year range I was looking at, none of them had birth records from Joplin, Missouri, or Newton slash Jasper counties, which are the uh, Joplin is in between. It's like Burley, how it's in like two different counties. Um, Mm -hmm. There weren't any birth records from either of those counties or from Joplin itself. So I think that's a really interesting little connection. So Ivy Joplin was born Ivy or Ivia Smith between 1889 and 1891 in Idaho, which does make her about eight years older than than Helen self-reports. And again, it is in Idaho, which is different than what she claims. But Ivy moved to Illinois where she married a man named Jesse Joplin or Jopling, and the two of them had a daughter named Irene, born around 1909. In the 1910 census, Ivy lived in Perry, Illinois, but in the 1920 census, she lived in Salmon, Idaho. By then, she was divorced, and her daughter was not living with her. And in fact, her ex-husband, Jesse, was in the Southern Illinois Penitentiary. So here's a uh, an Anthony-style rabbit hole um, that I found. So Jesse... He had shot and killed a doctor and the former mayor, Winston Dunn, of Daquan, Illinois, after Ivy had been ill for six months after visiting Dr. Dunn and basically, like, 
killed him because he couldn't fix her. Um, oh. Quote, this was the reason for his encounter with the physician, end quote. Like, basically, he got in this altercation because he didn't do anything. So I found this thoroughly interesting newspaper article from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch from June 8th, 1914. But it gives you a really good, interesting idea of this crime, and I'll get into why I think there is a, a huge possibility that this could be Helen. So, the shooting of Dr. D. Winston Dunn, 60-year-old former mayor of Dequan, Illinois, by Jesse Joplin, 35 years old, a coal miner, was due to a diagnosis made by Dr. Dunn when called in as Joplin's family physician, according to a statement made by Dequan official, who refused to permit the use of his name following Dunn's death from his wounds at the Missouri Baptist Sanitarium at 6.30 a.m. Sunday. The diagnosis, it was said, was regarded by Joplin as a reflection on his character, and when Joplin learned that it had become public, he openly stated his purpose to kill the physician. So I don't... As a reflection on his character is a really interesting way to describe, you know, this potential diagnosis. Quote, many who did not know of the diagnosis believed for a time that the shooting was due to Dr. Dunn's efforts to collect a bill from Joplin. The Slayer has a wife and young daughter. The shooting occurred Saturday night in Dr. Dunn's office in the Odd Fellows building at Daquan. The main street of the town on which the office was located was filled with merrymakers, as the Elks were conducting a street carnival at the time the shooting occurred. One version of the shooting was that Joplin became angry when Dr. Dunn recently refused to treat a member of the Joplin family, giving as his reason the fact that Joplin owed him an old bill. All Joplin would say was that the shooting was justified, but that, quote, the reason would never be known, end quote. While Jesse Joplin spent some of his time working at his trade as a coal miner, he was regarded by many persons in Dequan as a professional gambler. After shooting Dr. Dunn, Joplin reloaded his revolver and walked down a flight of stairs to the main street entrance of the Odd Fellows building. There he flourished his revolver and defied policemen to arrest him. The carnival crowd, which packed the street, became panic-stricken, and women fainted. Joplin then returned to Dr. Dunn's office and threatened to shoot a doctor who had been called to attend Dr. Dunn. He was disarmed by Nadine Leonard, Dr. Dunn's 15-year-old granddaughter, who was in a store on the main floor of the Oddfellows building when she heard of the shooting. Theodore Dunn, a Daquan clothing merchant, was at the coroner's office Monday to testify at the inquest into his father's death. He told a post-dispatch reporter he never heard his father give any reason for the shooting. He said he did not ask his father why Joplin had shot him, as his father plainly was in a critical condition and the doctors were working over him. The son did not know if his father ever had refused to treat any member of Joplin's family. Joplin's father years ago killed six persons in one day and then committed suicide at Jenny Link, Arkansas. In an anti-mortem statement, Dr. Dunn said Joplin entered his office with a revolver in his hand and said, I am going to kill you. That's what I came here for. I am going to send you to where you belong. To gain time, the doctor parlayed with Joplin, advising him to put away his revolver. As Dr. Dunn talked, he moved across the room until he was in such a position that Joplin was between him and the door leading to the corridor. Suddenly, he shoved Joplin into the hall and slammed the door. Joplin fired six shots, all of which went through the door and struck Dr. Dunn. One bullet broke the doctor's right arm, two penetrated the abdomen, two lodged in the chest, and one struck the left shoulder. Dr. Dunn, despite his wounds, made his way along the wall to a telephone and called Dr. Max Ades, whose office is across the street. I have just been shot, he said. I feel that I am mortally wounded and I want you to come to me. Dr. Ades dismissed a patient and ran to Dr. Dunn's office. He found Dr. Dunn reclining in a chair at the desk. 
Dr. Dunn was still conscious. He said he realized he was badly hurt and was anxious to tell the details of the shooting before losing strength. After examining the wounds, Dr. Aides called Dr. A. Daggett to aid him. He also telephoned for the chief of police. While Dr. Aides was working with Dr. Dunn, Joplin re-entered the office with the revolver still in hand. As quoted by Dr. Aides, Joplin said, I came to see if I did a good job. Dr. Aides told Joplin he had mortally wounded Dr. Dunn and begged him to go away. This seemed to anger Joplin, who, according to Dr. Aides, said, I've got a good start in evening up scores. Now I'm going to get you. Nadine Leonard, Dr. Dunn's 15-year-old granddaughter, entered the office as Joplin leveled his revolver at Dr. Aides. Stepping behind Joplin, she knocked the revolver from his hands. Before he could regain the weapon, William Plemis, chief of police, and Martin Cook, county judge, arrived in response to Dr. Aides' telephone call. They overpowered and arrested Joplin. Miss Leonard was shopping in a store under her grandfather's office when she heard he was shot and ran upstairs. At the police station, it was found that after shooting Dr. Dunn, he had reloaded his revolver. Dr. Dunn, who remained remarkably calm, told Judge Cook that he realized he probably would die and wanted to make a formal anti-mortem statement. He told of the shooting after he had slammed the door on Joplin, and his verbal account was supplemented by this written statement which he signed, quote, Jesse Joplin came into my office and said he was going to kill me. I had never had any trouble with him. I started to run out of his way when he shot me. Dr. D. Winston Dunn. After being taken to the Pinckneyville jail, Joplin said, I was justified in killing the man. I am sorry I had to be the man to kill him. Later, Joplin said that while he was talking to Dr. Dunn in the office, Dr. Dunn backed away from him and put his hand in his hip pocket. He said he opened fire because he believed Dr. Dunn was about to draw a weapon. It's actually a wild story, especially in that we don't know why he did it. But that, I mean, it's a pretty brutal story. So, yeah, um, like a desperate lover. Yeah. Like- yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I don't know if it was like if there was a diagnosis about maybe like a sexually transmitted disease or that sort of, you know, because he's talked about that it like questioned his character, you know, so is it something like that? Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, again, that was in 1914. So that's all I could really find about Jesse Joplin. And, uh, of course, we don't have a ton of information on Ivy Joplin in between 1914 and the 1920 census. But I did find her in the 1920 census. Again, she's living in Salmon, Idaho, with three other women as a boarder under a woman named Jessie M. Daniels. Now, again, this is just speculation, and as I said, you know, women running a boarding house with other women, especially in a small place, could be a brothel, but, of course, it also could have been perfectly respectable. Ivy's occupation is listed as a sales lady working at a dry goods store. The 1930 census, she lived, again, in Salmon. She is still divorced, but she's living with a young woman named Gail Clark, who is 19 years old, and this relationship is actually listed as her daughter. The census does list, actually, Gail as married, which would explain the last name, but we don't know of a daughter named Gail. The only daughter that we know of is named Irene. It's not impossible that she would have had a second child, but if Gail's age is correct, she would have been born in 1911. And if you remember from that newspaper article from 1914, Jessie Joplin had a wife and one young daughter. So that is a little suspicious, doesn't seem to match up. Ivy is still working as a sales lady in a dry goods store. So that's Ivy Joplin. Again, may or may not be Helen Hall. But we do know for sure that Helen lived in Salmon, Idaho. So let's go down another rabbit hole and talk about the history of salmon. 
So I went over the history of Lemhi County, where Salmon is located, in Season 3, Episode 5, or Episode 25, with Fedora Crawford. And the history of Salmon is pretty similar. Salmon City, which is now just called Salmon, is located in eastern central Idaho, about 15 miles from the Montana border. It is sandwiched between the Sawtooth National Forest to the south, the Bitterroot National Forest to the north, and the Beaverhead Deer Lodge National Forest to the east. The Salmon River, from which the town gets its name, flows west into Washington State and runs directly through town. Before European settlement, land was occupied by the Lemhi Shoshone people, also known as the Akaitika, which means eaters of salmon. Lemhi, the word, comes from Fort Lemhi, which was a Mormon mission that was active between 1855 and 1858, whose missionaries targeted members of the tribe. And the most famous member of the Shoshone Lemhi tribe was, of course, Sacagawea, who crossed through the area with the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1805. Now, she had been sold into marriage to a Quebecois trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau from a Hidatsa village near present-day North Dakota. Um, so she, you know, she had been born in that area, but had been captured in a raid and then traded and lived as sort of a, usually they lived as slaves with the Hidatsa Sioux tribe. That had happened in about 1800. She came through in 1805 after she had essentially been traded in marriage to Charbonneau. And she was considered most useful to Lewis and Clark because she could speak Shoshone, which they knew were people they were going to encounter on their way. In 1875, President Ulysses S. Grant established the Lemhi Reservation, which is about 100 square miles, with an executive order for Sacagawea's people in the Lemhi River Valley. And the executive order established, quote, the exclusive use of the mixed tribes of Shoshone, Bannock, and Sheep Eater Indians, end quote. A chief named Tendoy, who had one Lemhi Shoshone parent and one Bannock parent, led the peoples on the reservation for most of the time that the reservation existed, and there is actually a community in Lemhi County named Tendoy after him. Now, almost immediately after extending their order for this reservation, the government slowly began to rescind it, and the reservation was essentially defunct by 1905. And in 1907, there was an event of what some call the Lemhi Trail of Tears, which was their forced removal from their ancestral lands to the Fort Hall Reservation 200 miles away in the southeastern part of the state. While most modern Lemhi Shoshone are enrolled in the Shoshone-Bannock tribes of the Fort Hall Reservation, some remain in the Lemhi River Valley. So the first discovery of gold and sort of European settlement in Lemhi Valley was in 1866, and so of course miners rushed to the area. In 1867, a stagecoach route was developed from Montana to Salmon City. Uh, in 1869, Lemhi County was established with Salmon City as the county seat. In 1900, Salmon was given a city status. And then in 1910, Salmon was a western terminus of the Gilmore and Pittsburgh Railroad, which ran from Salmon to Du Bois, Idaho, which is about 100 miles away. And that railroad was actually built to access ore in Gilmore. It was a community south of Salmon. Those railroad operations ceased in 1940. And Salmon just sort of, you know, existed as this little community in sort of wilderness area. So as I previously mentioned, Salmon and Lemhi County are well known for outdoor activities, especially whitewater rafting, fishing, hunting, and you can go skiing and like ice skating in the winter. 
The Salmon River is nicknamed the River of No Return, which gives you an idea of how good the whitewater rafting is out there. Um, And then it does, uh, nearby, there is the Lost Trail Powder Mountain Ski Resort. So if you're into the outdoors, there's lots of stuff to do out there. The City of Salmon also operates the Sacagawea Interpretive Center, which is designed to provide education about Sacagawea, her life, and her people, the Lemhi Shoshone. And the museum does, of course, examine the Lewis and Clark expedition, of which Sacagawea was a crucial part. So, the salmon population in 2010 was 3,112, and the 2019 estimate is 3,169. So, still a pretty small community, doesn't have a lot of growth out there. Now let's really talk about Helen Hall. And this section of what we know is like a third of a page long. So (laughs) in late September 1932, a salmon resident named Marguerite Boggan shot and killed her husband in Helen's house, what some newspapers called a resort uh, of ill fame. Um, The Post Register, which is a newspaper from Idaho Falls, stated that the gun Marguerite used to kill her husband belonged to Helen as well. Marguerite and Helen were arrested and held in the Salmon City Jail together. So it seems that she was actually originally arrested on maybe some sort of accessory charge, because it seems very unlikely that this crime would have happened in her house uh, and that she randomly would have been arrested for her crime, which was a prohibition crime. So it seems more likely that the police couldn't really hold her on this accessory charge due to, like, little evidence and so they booked her on this other charge in order to sort of keep her in jail and so that other charge was giving intoxicating liquor to a minor and this is her own words on the crime quote i gave a 19 year old boy whiskey for wiping the dust off my car as he was in the habit of drinking he preferred whiskey to money end quote Prosecuting attorney F.A. McCall said of the crime, quote, She sold a small quantity of liquor to some boys who were almost grown and who, I assume, have purchased liquor from other persons on other occasions. Now, this was another tiny rabbit hole I went down. So obviously 19 years old is not a minor in terms of the legal age of majority or sort of the age that you're considered an adult. But as we know, it is a minor in terms of alcohol consumption. It is now, but it wasn't actually in 1932. Before Prohibition, as far as we know, there wasn't a minimum age for drinking, at least not in Idaho. And then during Prohibition, drinking at any age was illegal. So, you know, the question is, why is 19 years old a minor? Because that's her charge, selling liquor to a minor. So this comes down to the age of majority. So the age of majority in 1900 in Idaho was set for 21 years old for men. Strangely, in Idaho, it was actually 18 for women. So there was a a thing that I found that said that there could be sort of these weird circumstances where, like, if an 18-year-old woman and a 20-year-old man were married, the woman was considered adult, but the man was not. So just a funny little loophole there. So that is why she was charged with giving alcohol to a minor, because he was, in the age of majority, still a minor. So that's it. That's all we know of her crime. That's... (laughs) Sorry. Were there any other reports of like her house being raided or any nope. other criminality going on? Oh. Literally nothing. The only only newspaper mentions of her are about Marguerite's crime. Wow. Oh yeah. my gosh. So that's why this story is really more about uh <laughs> Ivy and <laughs> and Salmon City and Prohibition. 
Um, because like she does have, I do think she deserves to have her story told. It is, she actually, we didn't have a lot of women in for prohibition crimes and she is one of them. And this is, you know, an interesting crime in that she is the only woman who was charged with giving intoxicating liquor to a minor. And I think it is interesting that it seems to be sort of a, I don't want to say a bogus charge, but it was sort of a trumped up charge so that they could keep her in jail sort of as an accessory to Marguerite Boggins' crime. Mm-hmm. Let's go down a little bit of a prohibition rabbit hole. Just, I think, because especially I'm in a U.S. history PhD program, I'm trying to, like, sneak in a little bit of my knowledge now. Bear with me. So Anthony covered prohibition in episode 22 with Henry Pointer, but here's just, like, a little bit of a review. And just to give you the sources for all this information, this comes mostly from the online prohibition exhibit at prohibition.themobmuseum.org. And again, I highly recommend that Mob Museum source for all things related to prohibition and crime. It's super well done and a lot of fun. Then again, the two articles by Arthur Hart and then The War on Alcohol by Lisa McGurr. So around the 1840s, a new temperance movement sprung up with religious denominations who denounced drinking as sinful. Now, Maine was actually the first state to ban alcohol in 1851 and Four years later, by 1855, 12 more states, including Oregon, had actually banned alcohol. The Civil War in the early to mid-1860s really tamped down the movement for a while. But after the Civil War, mostly wives of middle class and businessmen championed the cause, and they blamed problems like domestic abuse and financial troubles on men who drank. And these women wanted to close saloons, breweries, and men-only drinking spots. In 1873, in Hillsboro, Ohio, a group of women led by Eliza Mother Thompson entered saloons and sang hymns, which was annoying enough to sort of convince many owners to stop selling alcohol. Now I'll give the whiskey up, and I'll take a coffee cup with Molly and the baby, don't you know? Don't you know, don't you know what a fellow ought to do when he's got a little family depending on him so he should try to be a man and to do the best he can for Molly and the baby, don't you know? And after this, their campaign really gained steam, and this became a popular tactic for temperance groups to use. And so in 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, was founded by Frances Willard. They campaigned for a national alcohol ban and also on women's suffrage. And we, uh, Anthony talked a little bit about the ties between the 19th Amendment and Prohibition and the WCTU. So the movement of the WCTU and this temperance movement really came to fruition in 1893 with the founding of the Anti-Saloon League. Now, in 1909, the state of Idaho actually adopted a local option, meaning that prohibition could go into effect if the citizens of the county voted in majority for it. So there could be sort of a patchwork of of counties where, you know, Ada County could have said they did want it and Canyon could have said they didn't. And so, you know, that becomes a little tricky. Now, both Governor James H. Brady and his opponent and the future governor, Moses Alexander, spoke in favor of a statewide ban in their platforms. Canyon County actually went dry in 1909, and Ada County voted but failed to pass prohibition in 1912. Finally, in 1916, the then-governor Moses Alexander presided over statewide prohibition two years before the nationwide ban. 
Nationally, the WCTU and the Anti-Saloon League began focusing mostly on banning alcohol locally, like in Idaho, but World War I was sort of the turning point to start really pushing it as a, as a nationwide ban. So prohibition activists were first able to get a temporary wartime ban on alcohol, but then they were able to push Congress toward a more permanent ban. And on January 15th, 1919, the 18th Amendment was signed into law, and alcohol was officially banned for good, as far as we knew. You know, we all know sort of the reputation of what follows in the 1920s with speakeasies and bootlegging. You know, that is fodder for popular imagination. Uh, So I won't go into that. And of course, you know, prohibition violations are so rampant that city and county jails start to fill up. And most of these charges are prohibition cases. This is from Arthur Hart in his 2020 article, quote, In response to pleas of innocence by those arrested, the prosecuting attorney's standard reply was, quote, that's what they all say, end quote, <laughs> <laughs> which I can completely imagine in a place like Idaho of these, you know, people arrested for bootlegging being like, I did, that's not mine. I don't know. I don't want to. That's not, you know, whatever. <laughs> and him just being like, that's what they all say. Right. <laughs> um, so then uh, Lisa McGurr, she said on the role that prohibition had on the rise of the modern penal state, quote, the 18th Amendment drove forward the effort to retool the criminal justice system. The public clamor over crime provided the opportunity to centralize criminal knowledge in Washington and develop new surveillance techniques. In collaboration with the International Association of Police Chiefs, a centralized Bureau of Investigation began collecting criminal fingerprints in Washington in 1924. This system of scientific identification and classification of criminals triumphed over other forms of identification, such as the Bertillon system of anthropometric measurement. Additionally, Prohibition police eagerly embraced wiretapping to catch large and elusive violators, end quote. So, you know, of course we had Bertillon's before fingerprints, but, you know, because so many people are being arrested on prohibition charges, the police are having to get creative and find ways to start collecting information, especially on people who are consistently breaking the law. And so that's where we start Mm -hmm. to see, you know, fingerprints that are collected in Washington, D.C., that the warden can send off for and say, I have this person, can you send me their fingerprints, you send off their fingerprints and say, what history do you have on this and uh, get information back. So that's kind of cool. Now, by September 1932, which is actually where we're at with Helen Hall, Prohibition was really culturally on its way out, but it would remain on the legal books for another 15 months. And by 1932, the country is nearly three years into the Great Depression. And current President Herbert Hoover was clinging to the 18th Amendment and the Anti-Saloon League trying to crack down on crime after the election in 1928. He said that liquor law violations were, quote, but a sector of the invasion of lawlessness, end quote, that made the life in the U.S., quote, more unsafe than any other country in the world, end quote. So Lisa McGurr shows that the major crime wave in the late 1920s included motor vehicle offenses, assaults, and murders, and they were all collateral damage, not on alcohol, but of the war on alcohol, that if prohibition hadn't been in place, you know, we would not have seen sort of the crime rate that we saw. By the early 1930s, even most Republicans, who were originally very staunch supporters of it, recognized the 18th Amendment needed to be repealed, and they felt that the 18th Amendment put too much power in the hands of Washington. It was too much centralized government, that if there was going to be prohibition, it should be up to the states to decide. 
The Great Depression, with staggering unemployment, thousands of failed banks, hundreds of closing factories, and incredibly low farm prices, was saddling government with stress that it could not handle for much longer. John D. Rockefeller, who had once been one of the most prominent financial backers of the Anti-Saloon League, said at the Republican National Convention in 1932 that the repeal of the 18th Amendment was, quote, essential to restore public respect for the law and the distribution of powers between the states and the nation as originally established in the Constitution. End quote. At the Democratic National Convention a few weeks later, future President Franklin D. Roosevelt said that the, quote, present state of affairs under prohibition were absolutely disastrous, end quote. So FDR won the election in 1932 by a landslide, keeping promises he made to the anti-prohibitionists. In the very first week of legislation, FDR sat down and said, quote, I think it's time the country did something about beer, end quote. Now a word... Wait till I get through the paragraph. Now a word as to beer. You good people, you good people are in a terrible hurry. But it's all right. I favor the modification of the Boston Act just as fast as the law to let us. So on March 14th, legislation came before Congress to repeal prohibition through a new amendment. And this actually, this legislation was one of the very first New Deal measures. And so finally, on December 1933, the 21st Amendment was ratified, officially repealing Prohibition. And the 21st Amendment is the only amendment in the Constitution to repeal another one. But she committed her crime in 1932, and Prohibition was still on the books. So Mm -hmm. um, Helen, for her crime of giving intoxicating liquor to a minor, was sentenced to six months to two years, and she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on September 24th, 1932. So here is her intake form. 34 years old, born Joplin, Missouri. Her nativity was Missouri. Her occupation was housewife. Her hair was dark brown. Her complexion was medium to ruddy. Her weight was 149. Um, She had a regular build. Her color was white. She was married. And the most interesting thing about her entire file, to be quite honest with you, is that her eye color is listed as orange. We have a black and white mugshot. I've never, ever heard of eyes described as orange. Yeah, me neither. Or seen eyes that I would describe as orange. So I'm fascinated by that. I'm wondering if, if she was ill, like, mm. could that well, be really? Well, because <laughs> so there is, so there's the intake form and then there's the one that has like the, the more specific like head length, head width. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it comes to color of eyes, it just says perif, which I'm assuming would stand for periphery, which I would assume would be like the whites of your eyes. And that's mm-hmm. nothing is listed under that. And so it's the, huh. that I'm pretty sure it's that, that part of your eye that's colored, that is what's listed as orange. Um, that's crazy. Which is, I mean, and again, like, even if she was sick, I've never heard of having orange eyes. Like you hear of yellow which, of course, would, you know, assume would be jaundice or um, some sort of, you know, liver, kidney failure. 
that doesn't seem to be what it is. So I don't, that's, I mean, ironically enough, that's one of the things that we know is true about her. And one of the things that of course we can't get information on. Like the, that's one of the things that we cannot see. Like one of the things we know and we can't, we don't have access to what that would have looked like. <sighs> so Honor Bertillion, pretty normal, uh, which I'm not surprised by. She's got a scar on her right knee, her left foot, and her left hip, and an operation scar on her stomach. The prosecuting attorney said he did not know how long she had lived in Salmon, but stated the character of her associates was, quote, not good. He also considered her a menace to society. Now, she she was arrested with Marguerite Boggan. She entered the penitentiary the same day as Marguerite Boggan. And there were three women already there. Uh, our good friend Lida Southard, Mary Cremroy, who was technically listed, but she was probably uh, at the state hospital, state hospital. by then. Um, and then a, a woman named Genevieve Reimer, who was in for forgery. Now, so she came in in September. It was all five or really four of these women until December 1932 when Reimer was discharged. In November 1932, she, she being, of course, Helen, wrote the parole board asking for a pardon explaining her crime that I read earlier. And she added, quote, but I am very sorry that I gave it to him. I am anxious to be released as I am the only support for my 78 year old mother, end quote. And once I found this out, guess what I went back and did? Uh, Look through the census. (laughs) I looked through the census, scoured the census for a 78-year-old mother, could not find anything. What? Oh, my gosh. So, (laughs) I don't know if it's a lie. I don't know if the details are wrong. I... I don't know, Anthony. I'm so sorry. Um, Oh, such a mystery. (laughs) It's such a mystery. So the parole board agreed and uh, agreed that, you know, she should be released as the only support of her 78-year-old mother who may or may not exist. And she was given a full and unconditional pardon on March 28, 1933. She served six months and four days of her six-month to two-year sentence. And that is literally it. (laughs) Jeez. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, good I, work. I, I, mean, I like the rabbit holes you went down. I'm so sorry that we know nothing about her. Like I've had several uh, women where I'm just like, oh, I'm so frustrated. I can't find anything about her. I thought going through the census was going to solve all my problems and I would find her mm-hmm. or someone like her and be like, this is her. I'm almost certain. Like I thought the 78 year old mother would absolutely key me into things. Nothing. I found nothing. Right. Nothing at all. Oh, the so, joy of research uh, is like finding those things. And when you spend hours and hours scouring and you don't find anything, mm-hmm. that that feeling of like unfulfilled, oh, it's the worst. Yeah. I probably spent like four straight hours scouring that census oh, in yeah. all these different ways. And so this oh episode, despite the fact that <laughs> we know so little about her, probably took me the longest of the whole season so far. <laughs> it was oh wow. so frustrating. So Yeah, yeah. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. 
Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. If you'd like to know more about the Idaho State Historical Society and other historical sites, please visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for Sky or I, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. Starting this year, we have a new way for listeners to get involved and support what we do through a sponsorship program. If you or any business owners you know are interested, send an email to anthony.perry at ishs.idaho.gov. Well, let's go to maybe the opposite end of the spectrum where you have almost too much to talk about. I am covering Charles M. Phelps, number 266 and number 392. So last week, you know, we covered a former military policeman turned Boise policeman turned taxi driver and suspected murderer. Today, I'm covering a a similar subject, a deputy U.S. marshal in the untamed West. And my sources, I use the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, a blog post titled Charles M. Phelps, Murders, Was He a Serial Killer? by Gwen Cuberness of the blog Criminal Genealogy, in which uh, Gwen actually shared documents from his Utah incarceration, and those were very helpful. And my conversations with a retired U.S. Marshal named Randy Martinez, who called just one day and actually turned me on to this story. He asked me if I've ever heard of Charles Phelps, and I was like, you know, there there were a couple of uh, men here. I haven't gotten to all of them yet. And he just <laughs> led me just kind of a, a quick, you know, synopsis of this story. And I went, what, what, wait, what? And, you know, I have, as I said, aged like two years in the probably 30 hours of research I've done on this fellow. <laughs> and then a Britannica.com article on the populist movement. So, according to all the records I could find, Charles was born in Ohio in 1857, and I couldn't find any info about his family or if he had any siblings. According to his prison file, he actually attended school until the sixth grade before leaving home, and he would tell prison authorities that he left home at the age of 12. I wondered if he was an orphan, but he stated that both his parents were living in his second incarceration. Strangely, there weren't any mugshots of Charles in either of his Idaho files. The only photo we have is actually from a newspaper, and that's from his Utah incarceration. So I know Charles was appointed Deputy U.S. Marshal in the Idaho Territory in 1886. And according to letters in Charles's file, he was appointed by U.S. Marshal Joseph P. Wilson to be his deputy in Pocatello, though it was most likely either Fred Dubois or Ezra Baird who were serving as the marshals in 1886 that actually appointed him. Regular listeners, your ears are probably perking up with the name Fred Dubois. Uh, we've spoken about him pretty extensively, particularly with our Stool Pigeon Saturday guest, John Dinger, who spoke about Dubois and the anti-Mormon laws, like unlawful cohabitation that he established and enforced in order to break up the Democratic-leaning voting block of Mormons in southeast Idaho. Charles Phelps was one of the deputy marshals who enforced these laws. So he would enter the towns in southwest Idaho and Bingham County and arrest suspected polygamous men. And Charles was mentioned many times among other marshals during these arrests. 
1884, the Idaho Test Oath was made into law, which made it illegal for anyone practicing plural marriage or who were part of a religion that supported plural marriage to run for office, vote, or serve on juries. So a committee of LDS bishops and elders actually gathered on July 21st, 1885, and they drafted this letter of grievances for President Cleveland in opposition to the Idaho Test Oath. The authors noted that Fred Dubois and the Republican Party in the Idaho Territory had disenfranchised 15,000 inhabitants through their anti-Mormon regulation that removed the right to vote or hold a public office. Quote, it is to be hoped that President Cleveland will in the near future clean out the nest of offensive partisans who are using the salaries they are receiving from a Democratic administration and the plunder they are accumulating and have already accumulated for the purpose of making the territory of Idaho Republican, if chicanery, fraud, and ill-gotten gain will accomplish it, end quote. One of the men who signed it was Bishop Amos Wright of Bennington, Idaho. He came to the Idaho Territory in the 1850s. He learned the Shoshone language and actually spoke it fluently. Uh, he worked in the cattle industry and, and the post office and large transport operations. And he was actually elected to the Idaho Territorial Legislature just a few years prior to the test oath. He was also a polygamist who was fighting the Du Bois regime but feared arrest by the marshals. And three years later, after writing this letter on August 8, 1888, in the Salt Lake Herald, Deputy Marshals Charles Phelps and his partners Hobson and Watson, quote, paid a visit to Bennington, Idaho this morning and arrested Bishop Amos Wright on the usual charge, but the deputies got left. The bishop mounted a horse and left the deputies to mourn his departure, end quote. Amos couldn't evade the marshals for long, though. He was captured within 10 days, and he was actually fined $200 for unlawful cohabitation. Roughly today, $5,600. Others captured in the raid were actually sent to the prison. And according to his 1915 obituary, Bishop Amos Wright had fathered 24 children in his 75 years on earth and had an impressive list of accomplishments as an Idaho pioneer. So, I mean, the people they were arresting, they weren't necessarily bad men other than this practice that is uh, questionable, of course. 24 kids is so many kids. <sighs> yeah, and like it listed the grandchildren too, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, won't, I can't get into that. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was going to say, I bet it's like hundreds. <laughs> yes. So Charles Phelps, he went on several what they called cohab raids during the summer of 1888, and in September, quote, Deputy Marshals Phelps and Watson are still on the hunt. They very much desire to have John Sutton of Paris, Idaho, accompany them to the commissioner's office. But after rummaging their pockets for several minutes for a warrant at Mr. Sutton's request and not finding it, he told them he preferred to stay with his family a few days longer. End quote. So they didn't have this warrant to make the arrest. And he caught them that, like, no, you can't take me. Oh, that's yeah. so smart. <laughs> but most accounts, they actually describe Charles as pretty gentlemanly, and he seemed to be an effective deputy United States marshal. However, one article from the Southern Idaho Independent reprinted in the Deseret News in Salt Lake on August 21st, 1888, questioned his morality. Quote, 
On Sunday last, there was a person at Montpelier from Eagle Rock whose name is Phelps and who claims to be a deputy U.S. Marshal. If that is the kind of man who represents the U.S. Marshalship of this territory, it is no wonder that the Mormons despise such desperados. This man, Phelps, was drunk, pulled his pistol, and threatened to shoot some person who he had a crossword with. His actions were more like those of a black guard and villain than a gentleman who is clothed with power from the marshal's office, end quote. This is a pretty revealing description of his penchant for alcohol and violence, which would be at the root of his future problems. At around 11.15 in the evening of November 24, 1890, Deputy Marshal Charles Phelps was drinking and enjoying himself in Pocatello, Idaho. Despite the night out, he still wore both of his 38 caliber revolvers strapped to his sides. It was payday for many of the railroad workers in Pocatello, so the town was just buzzing that evening, and word spread that a dance was going on at a club described as, quote, the notorious Dive Den and Saloon 555. The 555 had this decent-sized dance floor where this quadrille dance was in full swing. And this was this—it was a really popular dance for groups of uh, four couples or more with a lot of bowing and shaking and spinning and partner swapping. So, you know, I watched some videos. Think of, like, a proper Victorian square dance. I just, like, wish that we still knew how to do that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> people knew they, like, t- were taught how to do that. And, like, you would just yeah. go to parties and you just, like, knew how to do those things. And I'm just really old-fashioned and I just wish we could still do that. <laughs> and, I, I mean, I don't think it, this would have looked quite as proper as the, you know, the quadrille going on in Europe. I mean, this is Pocatello. Sure. <laughs> These are a bunch of Wild West types. But... Same sort of, you know, I I just picture it as a a square dance. So the 555 Saloon is filling and the drinks are being poured freely and some folks are getting rowdy. A piano player and a fiddler were playing away in the corner of the room and the fiddler happened to be Charles Phelps' uncle, a carpenter and violinist named Horace C. McQuirk. Charles joined in on the quadrille as his uncle played away. And a man named Heber West, a large, rowdy, 200-pound machinist for the railroad, stopped in the saloon and had a few drinks. He decided to join in the dance and began bumbling around in the middle of this quadrille, dancing up and down the middle of the floor between these four couples who were performing the dance together. And the owner actually stopped the music and asked Heber to leave the dance floor. Music kicked back on and Heber returned. Charles asked Heber if he would please get off the dance floor. Words were exchanged, as anyone who has uh, been in a club dance floor knows, but Heber really didn't know who he was talking to. Others describe Heber that night as, quote, a perfect nuisance, end quote. He continued to ruin the quadrille for the group, jumping around, bumping into the dancers, and Charles had enough. He asked Heber one last time to leave the dance floor. He grabbed Heber by the arm and, according to testimony, quote, spoke to him quietly and kindly. Heber asked Charles who he was, and he told him he was an officer. As soon as the word officer left his mouth, Heber decked him in the face. Charles lost his balance, fell to the floor near the piano, and it was described as a, quote, hard, violent blow, end quote. Heber then rushed forward at Charles and attempted to kick and punch him some more, and according to some witness testimonies, others actually began kicking Charles while he was down. In a flash, Charles pulled his pistol and fired. 
Heber shouted, he got me, I'm shot, and clutched his body, and the music stopped. Dancers came to his side and held on to him, and one witness who held Heber told him he wasn't hit at all, and Heber said, no, sir, I am killed, before slumping to the dance floor. And according to the coroner, the gunshot was, quote, in the chest bone in the exact center of the bone. The bullet went through the right lung, cutting the lower lobe. The bullet lodged under the skin of the back. I cut it out. There was no other wound upon the body. I think that wound would cause death. It certainly did, end quote. Charles hopped to his feet, ran to the bar where he requested his overcoat, collected his horse, who was at a ranch nearby, and grabbed some food and rode to Ross Fork, where he caught a passenger train and stopped in Blackfoot. And when he was there, he actually left a note for the sheriff that he would probably be looking for him and to not go into any trouble because he would be at Eagle Rock and would be back on the first train. He turned himself in and had a preliminary hearing before paying his $500 bail. Heber West left behind a wife and several children and a lot of mourning family. On a side note, the Blackfoot News printed the this little advertisement on December 6, 1890, just a little over a week later. Quote, nobody killed at the famous 555 this week. Walking is good on the other side of the street, end quote. <laughs> I, I just was like appalled by this. Like, are you are you kidding me? Anyway. So the grand jury actually indicted Charles after they heard the evidence. They agreed that there was enough evidence to support a trial and potentially a conviction. Charles got wind of this, and he skipped town. He crossed the border north into Montreal, Canada, and then headed east and crossed the border back to the U.S. and settled in South Dakota. And after a short time, he actually started to trek back towards Idaho, settling in Butte, Montana. A $500 reward was set for his capture. Heber's brother actually spotted Charles in a saloon in Butte, Montana on April 14th. Charles narrowly dodged his capture, but it narrowed the search for him. After some investigation, authorities discovered Charles had fled to Helena, Montana. A marshal began stalking local saloons and clubs there, and on April 22nd, 1891, quote, believed he had located the man. The two walked up to the headquarters gambling house and were leaning against the bar when Phelps came in. Frey gave Fure a kick on the heel to put him on. The marshal waited a moment until the man had walked out and then followed him down to Con Kelly's saloon. Fure looked him over very carefully and consulted his description, end quote. Charles left that saloon and the United States Marshal Fure, with backups nearby awaiting his signal, actually followed Charles down the street. As Fure approached to confirm the identity, he gave the signal, and the two policemen actually rushed in and grabbed Charles by the arms. Charles didn't fight and, quote, took his arrest with a good deal of coolness considering the crime, end quote. Part of the description for his capture was a scar I will describe in a moment in his intake, and on the way to the county jail, Charles requested a stop at Marshall Cronin's saloon, where he actually bought drinks for the whole crowd there. <laughs> <laughs> Party. Just like such a wild <laughs> west thing. Like, hey, let me stop in. Yeah. <laughs> so he actually waived extradition. United States Marshal Fure actually brought him back to Pocatello for his trial. Now, at the trial, Charles would take the stand and said that he was struck in the side of the head and fell to the ground, and he only reached for his gun after Heber began kicking him. 
Quote, I don't think I would have fired until I got the kick that dazed me and I began to get scared about that time. I realized it was pretty near time to do something. When the shot was fired, quote, the name was redacted in the archives file, was over me at least on one knee. He had me with his left hand on the throat. That was when I fired the shot. I had no time to think about anything. I just pulled the gun and shot, end quote. He said he had a lump on his head for three to four weeks and swollen gums from the punch to the side of the head that were still visible while in the courtroom. Despite these claims of self-defense, Charles was actually convicted of manslaughter, and that was basically due to his his fleeing uh, instead of standing trial. Mm. So his intake, we have Charles M. Phelps, number 266, received July 13th, 1891 from Bingham County. Crime, manslaughter, sentenced six years, age 34, born in Ohio, legitimate occupation, blacksmith which i thought was interesting he didn't put united states marshal well i bet there's a reason he didn't put united states marshal you're heading into prison right yeah uh served apprenticeship yes uh five feet eight inches tall ruddy complexion 155 pounds light brown hair light brown eyes married but separated with two children this is one of those things where i was like okay what and i couldn't find any details Mm. about this marriage or children Hmm. Listed his father as living, no answer for his mother, and he would actually list his mother as living in this in his next intake. Left home at 12 years old, grew up and went to Sunday school in the Episcopal Church, could read, write, and had six years of common school education. He's a moderate drinker. No former imprisonment. His closest relative, H.C. McQuirk at Eagle Rock, Idaho. He had a scrawny build, fair teeth, wore a light red mustache, wore a size 7 boot, and under India ink marks, scars, and deformities, the authorities wrote, quote, one scar about one thirty-seconds of an inch in width running outside the corner of left eye, diagonally down the cheek for about a quarter inch, end quote. And the newspaper in Helena noted that Charles would be a good-looking man if it weren't for this mark of distinction, this scar. I, you know, of course, couldn't find any details where he got it, but it was probably while he was a marshal. It's just, like, the most Wild West thing that I can think of. This, like, U.S. marshal walking up with this, like, giant scar, like, <laughs> leading from his... Do you know, like, when you picture, like, you know, this, like, seasoned marshal from the Wild West, like... Oh, yeah. That's, like, exactly what you picture. Totally. He 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 has that look, like, oh, my mm, gosh. Totally. Yeah. Now, his time in the Idaho State Penitentiary, I, I really, there's there's just not a lot in his file. Um, the prisoners would have been enclosed in a prison yard about half the size of what it is now, surrounded by a 12-foot wooden fence and two cell blocks, the Territorial Prison and the new 1890s cell house. We don't have a biennial report for that time, but there was a controversy as Secretary Pinkham noted that, quote, It is true that a number of the convicts have been employed in the manner stated, but this is not in violation of the Constitution, as the quarries are the property of the state and situated upon the penitentiary reservation. The contractor, E.S. Chase, pays the state 50 cents a day for the service of each convict and, in addition, a percentage of the value of the stone quarried, which amounts to about 15 cents a day additional per man. The matter has been greatly exaggerated. The number of convicts employed 
in the quarry last month was not over 15, and they only worked a portion of the month, not regularly at all, end quote. So, obviously, the stone would be used for construction projects, which included the wall, which was erected between 1893 and 1894 during his incarceration. And with a background in blacksmithing, Charles may have been involved with the stonework or maintenance of the, the tools themselves used to quarry the stone. Being a young and fit individual, he was probably put to work in the construction projects as well. It's not long until letters began arriving for his defense, including about three solid pages of signatures from members of the community asking for clemency a year into his sentence in 1892. Fred Dubois actually wrote a letter from the Republican State Central Committee on September 10, 1892, stating, quote, I am loath to make any suggestion in regard to these matters, but will say for Mr. Phelps that he was a deputy marshalman in Bingham County and had always borne a very good reputation as a law-abiding citizen until his trouble came upon him, end quote. I thought, wow, that's quite the, quite the letter from, from the marshal. I've never seen anything written from Du Bois before. A letter actually from the warden of the prison dated October 4th, 1892 states, quote, to whom it may concern that I've, again, I've never seen a letter like this before. This is to certify that Charles M. Pelps, a prisoner committed to the penitentiary for four years for manslaughter from Bingham County, has been confined here since July 3rd, 1891, and during that time has had no infractions of the prison rules recorded against him and has been a good and industrious prisoner. F.S. Jen Warden. And that was to the, the board? Yeah, yeah. Which, which I, was he not part of the what? board at the time? I think it was for the governor or just oh, okay. for future board meetings. I huh. I think that Charles yeah. had a lot of higher ups, you know. Well, Scott I mean, Dubois. yeah, when you're a U.S. marshal. Right. And you'll see, this, this gets a little uh, deeper. So two days later, a letter arrived from the former U.S. Marshal Joseph Wilson, who deputized him four years earlier, as he said. He defended Charles having his pistols at a dance by stating, quote, that owing to the dangerous character of the duties entailed upon said Phelps as such deputy, it was necessary for him to carry weapons for the protection of his life and person. That at the time of the alleged shooting for which said Phelps was convicted and sentenced and prior to that time, the said Phelps was in the habit of being constantly armed. The said Phelps being continually employed in the service of the United States that threats had been made against the life of said Phelps repeatedly before the said alleged shooting, end quote. Some other documents included some letters from a notary public that wrote them in Pocatello. So one was transcribed from what his uncle, Horace McQuick, had told him on November 18th, 1892, and it stated that the principal witness of the prosecution, quote, on several occasions, he told me that he came to the scene of the killing in company with West, the deceased, and was one of these witnesses who kicked Phelps just prior to the shooting and while Phelps was down and West was on top of him, that upon said trial he denied these statements and was a material witness for the prosecution, and these facts to which said Owens swore falsely at said trial were material facts perverted and must have been influential with the jury in deciding this matter." End quote. There was a lot of talk of, like, was he being kicked by multiple people while he was down? Like... This guy was saying, oh, no, nobody was kicking him. Another letter from the notary public 
from Henry Walsh stated that a woman named Dora Beaumont, who testified against Charles, said, quote, that she was told by friends of the prosecution what and how to answer and swore to, and this is an indecipherable word, up requested of her and that her testimony was false and known by her to be such at the time it was given. So basically, she lied on the stand, just basically being fed lines against Charles Phelps. Another letter from the notary public came in from John Metal, the deputy sheriff of Alturas County, who had spoken to another witness for the prosecution, Miss Susie Day, who admitted to the sheriff that her testimony was also false. Quote, she was not in the house or present when the shooting occurred and that she, and this is another indecipherable area, falsely for the reason that she underlined, had it in for Phelps and was prejudiced against him. End quote. Charles even had a letter from Idaho Congressman Willis Sweet, one of Idaho's first after attaining statehood in 1890. He apologized that he couldn't help Charles at the time of the trial because he was busy, but, quote, most cheerfully testified to your integrity and efficiency as an officer at a time when it paid not to be honest. I think you right to be pardoned. You can be of service to good society and to yourself if a free man again, end quote. Despite all of these letters, these notary public documents, Charles was not released until January 3rd, 1894. So, he wasn't out long before he found himself in trouble again. He returned to Pocatello and crossed paths with Deputy Marshal Hobson, who was desperate for men for a reason I will get to in just a moment here. He deputized Charles Phelps, which was a bold action to redeputize an ex-convict. They read a note in a newspaper called The Populist Educator that they did not like. And this newspaper was dedicated to the Populist Party of the 1890s, which was motivated in giving farmers an equal footing against larger businesses and manufacturing and industry. And they called for an increase in currency, graduated income tax, direct election of U.S. senators, tariffs on revenue and not goods, and the government ownership of railroads to allow fair transport of goods. The Panic of 1893 led to the first real major crash and depression in the United States as the stock market crumbled due to poor and risky investments and resulted in mass unemployment and bank closures all around the country. The populists, they were a popular movement among the poor and among farmers, and the editor of the newspaper, Frank Walton, was running on the populist ticket for a position as state auditor and, quote, severely criticized the course of Deputy United States Marshal Hobson in arresting the Coxieites and especially the special deputies he had appointed, referring to several of them as secretaries, ex-convicts, and saloon healers. Among these, Charlie Phelps and W.G. Hobson were called ex-convicts, end quote. So there were two? There were two ex-cons on the on the force? I did not see. I don't think W.G. Hobson was an ex-con. I looked and looked, and he was still a U.S. Marshal. I, huh. He's the one who hired Charlie. So I Just think classic misreporting. Yeah, exactly. He was lumping Charlie with Hobson, saying, like, oh, these two. But you'll see in a moment. <laughs> in, in 1894, you know, all these unemployed workers were led by an Ohio businessman named Jacob Coxey, who held the first major protest march on Washington, D.C. in our nation's history. 
unemployed men from all across the country banded together and they headed east to demand changes to help the working classes. The men put in charge of stopping these groups of hundreds and thousands of unemployed men heading to the capital were the United States Marshals. And the railroads, they actually attempted to bar these Coxieites from boarding the trains, but they were overwhelmed. They were swarmed, and these Coxieites were taking over trains. And it threw off order, caused major disturbances to industry in the spring of 1894. It was, it was a pretty amazing show of mostly peaceful force of the working classes with this clear message being sent to the government and the businessmen of the country that their Gilded Age politics, they had to change if anything was going to continue. And I read accounts of, of some bloodshed as marshals and Coxieites actually came head to head at train stations. But for the most part, these were pretty peaceful. And most of the bloodshed was probably due to marshals, you know, deputizing untrained local men uh, <laughs> as they got word that carloads of these Coxieites approached their town. And you can see why Marshal Hobson was desperate and deputized Charles Phelps. In all, 154 Coxieites were arrested in Idaho in May after stealing a train in Montpelier and crossing state lines. And they were captured, arrested, and secured in this little makeshift prison in Boise called Camp Pinkham after the United States Marshal Pinkham, who converted a train roundabout into a, this makeshift jail. Pinkham was not a fan of the name, and the men at Camp Pinkham ranged from 18 to 55 years old and were unemployed carpenters, bricklayers, barbers, blacksmiths, and just everyday common laborers. They basically just sat waiting to be charged, and Governor McConnell wrote to the Attorney General, quote, Marshal Pinkham has a large number of common wheelers under arrest. Local jails are inadequate to hold them until trial can be had. Many of them may not be guilty as charged, but in any event, they should not be crowded like wild cattle into a pen without sleeping in sanitary accommodations. The Marshals should be amply provided with tents and blankets so that he can humanely care for these misguided, unfortunate men. Please, have such orders issued as will enable Marshal Pinkham to comply with the demands of civilization, end quote. Pinkham is questioned by the Attorney General, and he's like, hey, I haven't had any complaints from these Coxieites. They're, they're all fine. Uh, there's a lot of interesting scenes, though, that, that like sound like some of the events that we've witnessed in the last year. <laughs> this woman actually approached Camp Pinkham and yelled, hurrah for the working men. And all these men actually burst out with cheers. And like the guard had to like order her to go away. And she screamed, I'm an American. My grandfather's fought in the revolution. I want you to understand. And I won't move. The men in the roundabout were like screaming themselves hoarse. And finally she <laughs> was led away. <laughs> I seriously spent so much time going down this Camp Pinkham rabbit hole. It was just so fascinating. I had never heard of this, you know, March on Washington, but uh, definitely want to write some papers on this. Anyway, needless to say, it was a divisive time in our history, and it paired those attempting to uphold the law against the working classes. And when Frank Walton degraded the marshals in this newspaper, it, it caused some, uh, some tempers to flare up. So... 20 minutes after the newspaper hit the streets, Hobson approached Walton in the street and had some words with him. Hobson actually struck Walton, quote, but the blow glanced off without doing any damage, end quote. Walton pulled a gun. 
and stopped any further altercation between himself and the marshal. Later that evening at about 8 p.m., Charles and Hobson entered Walton's store. Hobson ushered everyone but Frank Walton to quickly leave with his gun drawn, and Charles had his pistol in hand and pointed it at Walton and said, I will just kill you right now. Walton reached for the gun, quote, and the hammer caught on his hand, preventing it from being discharged. Then a struggle took place between Walton and his two men. Walton was pretty badly beaten with the pistol until the police and a large crowd arrived and interfered, end quote. Charles saw the police in this crowd coming at him and took off, but Hobson, he just waited there and, and was put under arrest. Threats were made through the town that, you know, Charles was going to be lynched if he was captured. A $100 reward was placed on his head, and fortunately for him, he was captured by officers north of Pocatello and brought safely to the jail. His bond was fixed at $5,000, which he could not afford. He couldn't procure. Hobson was given a $1,500 bond, which he paid, and he was never charged. Charles was. He was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, and he pled guilty. And he entered the prison again on August 8th, 1894, seven months after his release for Mm. manslaughter. So Mm. his, yeah, yeah. His sentence was fixed at one year and he was 37 years old. And other than his age, the only new piece of information on his intake was a note that he was sporting a long brown mustache. Prior, it was a red mustache. And I actually looked into it. While he was in Helena, he had actually dyed his mustache red as a disguise. (laughs) So, (laughs) So Frank Walton actually lost the election for state auditor that year. And in November, I found this. This is one of the most entertaining write-ups. He came to Boise to speak for his populist agenda. And the Idaho statesman had this to say about him. Quote, Mr. Walton made by far the most entertaining speech of the evening. He devoted himself almost exclusively to the question of national finances. With his hands under his coattails, he sailed off through the ethereal ocean of infinite space, studded by dollar marks and interest-bearing bonds. After making any number of most astounding statements, he was about to fall headlong into the slough of absurdity when he grasped the beard of the rag-money comet and soared to even higher altitude. He finally came down and told the audience a funny story. End quote. <laughs> I was like, what? what? What did he even say? I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I think that this journalist was drunk and was like, I, it was very lofty things that he was saying. <laughs> For Charles's second incarceration, he only had an intake form in his file. There was no other document in there and no mugshot again. During his year, he would have seen the completion of the prison walls and been processed actually in the brand new administration building, the entrance that everyone who visits the old pen passes through. And uh, we have the 1894 Warden's Biology Report that describes the administration building. So here we go. The office building was completed and ready for occupancy February 13th, 1894. It contains 11 rooms aside from the tower for a bathroom, and the one above it is used for an armory. A heavy iron vault door closes it from the rest of the building and makes it perfectly safe for the keeping of our firearms and ammunition. The lower floor of the building is divided by an arched driveway through the center. 
leading into the prison yard and closed in at either end by heavy iron gates. The rooms on the right of this archway are used for the office and deputy warden's sleeping quarters. On the left are two rooms. The front one serves for the library, dispensary, and guard's reading room. The rear room is placed the general alarm bell, which is connected with the cell houses by an electric system whereby any signal may be given by the guards within the walls or cell houses. The second story is occupied by the warden and family and furnishes sleeping quarters for the guards. This story is divided by a hallway leading out onto the main wall. All the rooms have been plastered and finished with a sand finish except the two rooms occupied by the warden's family. End quote. So kind of a good description of what the administration building looked like right as it was completed. So as you walk in, warden's office is there to the right and to the left. It was like this library and reading room for guards. Now, the warden also wrote that the prison was crowded at this point, as there were only 84 cells at the prison, 84 single-man cells at the prison at the time, and there were about 250 prisoners. So, quote, this old cell house was erected in 1868 and has long ago served its usefulness. The walls are filthy and teeming with insects and can only be made presentable by frequent coats of whitewash. On one side, the walls are crumbling, and the foundation has settled out of the level, end quote. Oh, so you're, like, covering this up just by, like, uh, let's just throw another (laughs) paint on it. He even noted that the new cell house, the 1890 cell house, was in poor condition and probably wouldn't be able to hold the roof on with the poor craftsmanship put into it. Quote, both of the cell houses should be torn down and a large stone cell house erected in their stead, which would accommodate at least 250 prisoners, end quote. So pretty rough conditions. I just really, I really love that, you know, in 1894, they're like, listen, we got to tear down both these buildings. And guess what is still standing today? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i mean still used 1890 cell house still used until the 1960s like right. so uh, wild <laughs> and you know gosh. patrick murphy he would be housed in the territorial prison he's talking about like oh yeah there are bug infestations in there and all this stuff and in, in like the 1915 era <laughs> so, <sighs> so charles he spends his year he's released in august 1895 And he headed to Pocatello, but was urged by authorities there to leave the town. So he decided to start a new life south in Salt Lake City, Utah. He met a woman there named Kate Jacobs, who ran a lodging house on South Main Street. And the two actually wed in late October 1895, about two months after he moved to the city. Charles was her third husband. And within two weeks, she called the police and called for his arrest. Quote, Mrs. Jacobs, recently married to Phelps, who is a non-producer of anything except a whiskey breath and a bad temper, all of which has caused her to conclude that she wants not only to send him to jail to complete his honeymoon, but declares that the matrimonial ties shall be severed, end quote. Charles was arrested. (laughs) That's that's a rough description of him. (laughs) (laughs) I know that a non-producer of anything except whiskey breath and a bad temper. Unable to produce anything but whiskey breath. Oh, man. (laughs) So he's arrested. He's charged with assaulting her. But after seeing Charles on the stand, Kate, quote, reconsidered and stubbornly refused to prosecute. Prosecutor James undertook to demonstrate to her 
that the court would tolerate no trilling with its time, end quote. So she doesn't press charges, and I couldn't find any information about Charles and Kate, though I'm pretty certain that they divorced soon after. Now, the next thing I came across was a crime connected to an alias that Salt Lake newspapers would actually put on Charles over the next few years, and that was George Hickson. In May 1896, Charles was caught in a raid as officers went into Victoria Alley, which was a part of the seedy underbelly of Salt Lake off of Main Street. This area was full of vice, brothels, drugs, and regular police raids, and police were alerted to go to a small shack in the alley where, quote, two women, not unknown to the police, ran a brothel. Quote, the room entered was occupied by the two women, a man who gave his name as George Hickson, a couple of girls, and several small children. The scene witnessed was unfit for description, end quote. George, a.k.a. Charles, was forced to dress himself along with the woman he was with, and the adults were arrested and taken to the station. The oldest daughter of the women was actually put in charge of the house to take care of the small children, and later that night she was awakened to a man in her room attempting to assault her. She escaped and ran to the police, and the man's name was Bob Skews. He was actually a local undertaker in town, and you'll hear more about him in just a moment. So Charles, he actually posted bail and was released, simply fined, quote, $30 for resorting to a house of prostitution, end quote. Bob Skews had an attorney who argued that nothing really resulted of the attempted assault, and Bob was drunk at the time, so, you know, he shouldn't get into too much trouble. He was handed a $50 fine. That was it. And the article about the young victim actually ended with this quote, quote, girls like Miss, and I'll redact her name, who are thrown out of a home are willing to work and work hard for a little more than their board and clothes. Ugh. So... Let's talk about another man named John Egan. He was described by friends as a man with a sunny disposition despite his shortcomings. He had worked his way up for the railroad in Colorado to section boss before he met and married his wife in 1888. They had two sons together. John decided to leave the railroad business and turn to his main vice, alcohol. He purchased the White House Saloon in Salt Lake City, and while struggling to keep the business running, he also had some struggles with his marriage. His wife would tell reporters, quote, Barring his drinking, he was the best man that ever lived. Whiskey caused all the trouble between us, for I kept telling him that if he did not leave it alone, I would leave him, end quote. And she did. She ran off with another man, and John Egan actually tracked her down, brought her back, but things didn't improve, and after a short time, he lost nearly everything to the saloon. She left him, but he continued to send her money to support their children while he hustled up work. And during the summer of 1897, John finally secured a job at the Short Line Railroad in Pocatello, Idaho. In the early hours of Sunday, July 11, 1897, 50-year-old John Egan made his last stop into the Senate Saloon in Salt Lake after a night of drinking on the town. He's going to enjoy himself before he settled everything in Salt Lake and moved to Pocatello to restart his old life in the railroad business. He met a stranger outside the bar, Charles Phelps, and the two seemed to hit it off. John offered to buy Charles a drink inside. So, of course, Charles isn't going to pass that up. 
about five hours later at 4 a.m. Sunday morning, a night watchman was passing through the alleyway behind the Senate saloon and discovered John Egan's body. There were large abrasions on his forehead, nose, and left temple. Other officers were alerted, and detectives quickly spotted the clear 30- to 40-foot tracks from John's feet being dragged through the sand from the back door of the Senate saloon. Three men had been seen there late that evening with John. The undertaker, Bob Skews, the barkeeper, Jesse McMillan, and Charles Phelps. All three men were arrested and questioned, and after some time of questioning, McMillan, the barkeeper, was the first to fold. The newspaper stated that it was due to his, quote, perturbed frame of mind. He had been for an entire day without the alcoholic stimulant to which he was accustomed, end quote. As officers battered him about the man who was dragged from his saloon, he slowly broke down and admitted that he and Charles had hashed a plan to drug Egan and rob him. On the stand at the coroner's inquest, Charles would admit, quote, We did the job for profit, of course. You don't suppose a man would put morphine in another man's beer unless he expected to get something out of it, do you? We thought the man had considerable money, and we wanted to get some of it, end quote. So after befriending John, Charles handed barkeeper Jesse McMillan a little bottle of morphine and told him to drug John's beer. Quote, he did not say why I should put it in, and I did not ask him. The drinks that the morphine went into were served between 11 and 2 o'clock. I put morphine in all that was served to Egan and sat the poison glasses in front of him. The second time I went in with drinks, I noticed that Egan was getting drowsy, but he was still talking and smoking, end quote. Not long after, Charles left the little back room and handed Jesse a nice gold watch and a chain and $2 in silver. Charles kept the remaining money, not a wad of cash that he was expecting and gold, but $2 in silver. Snores could actually be heard in the back room, and John Egan was passed out cold at the table. Jesse told Charles to take Egan outside to take him into the alleyway, so Charles enlisted Bob Skews, the undertaker, who proclaimed that he had no connection to the crime, to help carry the body of this drunk out of the saloon. And Bob would actually never be charged for his involvement mm -hmm. in this crime. The coroner testified that, quote, the amount of morphine administered to Egan as described by Phelps and McMillan would prove fatal to any person not addicted to its use, end quote. Charles was asked if he wanted an attorney and told the judge, quote, nah, I ain't got no use for an attorney, end quote. Despite the bravado that he showed in court, he still had an attorney who requested that Jesse and Charles have separate trials, which was granted. The attorney quickly left the case when Charles revealed that he couldn't afford to pay him and that his two witnesses, Bob Skews to name one, had left Salt Lake and were nowhere to be found. Jesse was looking at a lesser charge, murder in the second degree. His attorney stated that he planned to plead guilty. Charles was looking at murder in the first degree and felt that he had to fight it, and finding a jury actually took several days in the trial. Quote, once during the day, Phelps smiled, and there was an occasional glitter in his small, cruel eyes, but during the greater portion of the time, his face was enveloped in a half-frown, which now and then deepened into an expression of disgust, hopelessness, and despair as the full gravity of his predicament flashed over him, end quote. Finally, after all this work and time and effort to find a jury, as the trial was about to begin, the attorneys met with the judge. Charles agreed to plead guilty to murder in the second degree. 
The prosecuting attorney stated, quote, under the plea of guilty of murder in the second degree, the court could sentence Phelps for life, end quote, which is exactly what he was hoping to do. And wouldn't you know it, Jesse McMillan decided he wasn't going to plead guilty and that his attorney wasn't authorized to make statements about his plea on his behalf. So Charles is convicted of murder in the second degree. He didn't show any sign of agitation in the courtroom and asked if he had anything to say before the sentence was pronounced. He said, quote, nothing, your honor, save to say that I didn't intend to kill the man, end quote. He was sentenced to life in prison on December 14th, 1898. Jesse McMillan made a good choice in fighting the case, and he was actually handed a 20-year sentence for manslaughter. I will cover, you know, the Utah State Prison in a future episode. This is already long enough, but I did find one article from February 27th, 1899 in the Salt Lake Tribune titled, Men Who Wear Stripes, and it stated that there were 176 men serving time and began with a quote from one of the prisoners saying, quote, the worst thing about this business is the continual sight of these infernal stripes. Upstairs, downstairs, out in the yard, over on the farm, and everywhere. Stripes, stripes, stripes. End quote. The whole article is it's pretty entertaining, and it talks about, like, this prison is kind of like a great human psychology study. All these characters that you can analyze. And wouldn't you know it, Charles and Jesse are depicted in it. Quote, Charles Phelps seems to have the least worry of any of the prisoners. He is employed in the underwear department, the task of sewing on buttons being his. He is fat and apparently contented. His partner, Jesse McMillan, is running a sock machine and looks as though he has not much longer to live. End quote. And this was due to McMillan actually suffering from consumption, the term for tuberculosis at that time. Uh, I, I didn't see there there weren't any escape attempts. They seemed to be really g- good prisoners. And actually, Jesse was teaching the other prisoners how to read and was part of several uh, uh, church and religious groups while incarcerated. I didn't see Charlie being involved in any of those. They were actually both released on September 1st, 1909. And... Jesse McMillan, he actually served the rest of his life quietly in a farm in in southern Utah. According to the later newspapers, Charles essentially went right back into the criminal business. He stuck around Salt Lake for a short time, and the April 27, 1910 Salt Lake Herald Republican stated, quote, Charles possessed of his old-time desperadoism. Phelps headed a gang of thieves and highwaymen into Buell early in March to prey upon gold seekers traveling into the new mining camps at Jarbridge, about, which is about 20 miles south of Buell. Several members of the gang are said to have been imported from Salt Lake by Phelps, who since his pardon from the Utah State Prison has been known as the high priest of Intermountain Yeggmen, skillfully evading authorities, end quote. Charles was suspected of several crime waves in Nevada, Utah, and Idaho. And on March 20th, 1910, Charles entered Buell, quote, with his pockets bulging with money, believed to have been stolen from gold seekers, and entered into a card game at the pastime pool room, end quote. He played a game against a man named John May, a bricklayer that lived just a few miles outside of Twin Falls. Unfortunately, John was having a great day and kept winning. Charles started to lose his cool after losing one hand too many, and he finally snapped. He jumped up from the table, lunged at John May with a five-inch knife, stabbed John May several times in the abdomen. 
John collapsed unconscious from his chair, and Charles yelled at everybody else in the pool room to put their hands up, and he ran out. It was thought that John wouldn't survive, as one of the wounds pierced his left lung just above the heart. Immediately, word spread in the Northwest, and his mugshot from his Utah incarceration, which is the photo for this episode, was spread far and wide. About two weeks later, a man was arrested in Cleelum, Washington, on the way to the Canadian border. However, the sheriff of Twin Falls received a call on April 1st, 1910. It was the wrong guy. On April 18th, a man matching his description was arrested in Harrisburg, Oregon, and taken to the jail in Albany. The man in question had arrived in Harrisburg, quote, as a hobo and had been working in a harness shop, end quote. When authorities spoke to the sheriff in Twin Falls, they discovered that their man was not Charles Phelps. Finally, April 25, 1910, authorities in Hood River, Oregon, arrested a man matching his description. The Twin Falls sheriff went to Boise, gathered up extradition papers from Governor Brady, and headed to Hood River. Turned out to be the wrong man. Charles Phelps disappeared. My only guess is that he made it across the border going to Canada or he headed south and had these reports made falsely to throw off the scent. I'm sorry to say, but the unsatisfactory conclusion to this story is that the rest of Charles Phelps' life is a mystery. I have no idea what happened to him. And I know of two other researchers who are also pulling their hair out because his story ends with this oh sorry it was the wrong man in oregon and oh i've spent so many hours and it's so irritating (laughs) but that is the story of charles phelps i think we have a theme of this episode and it's that we lost him (laughs) where did they go where did they go who were they was his name really charles phelps was it george hickson was it charles phillips I kind of, I find the stories, like, most interesting when they go from law enforcement to crime. Crime. Yeah. Which we saw just last episode. Last episode with, yeah, Ralph Golden. Last episode. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you're trained in this sort of thing. Like, you'd think that you would know how to, you know, I I don't want to say cover up a crime, but, you know. You, like, know how to avoid the authorities, yeah. Like, you know what they're looking for, and so you can sort of act in a way that, you know, hides whatever it is that you're trying to hide. Yeah. I mean, this guy sounds like a a real jerk. (laughs) A real jerk. Yes. A real jerk. I agree. And and the the other thing is I don't I don't know if John May survived or not. There's no documentation. I scoured newspapers for hours trying to find out. And I I know I came across one where he was like, you know, I don't know if I'm even going to press charges against Phelps. Ah. Uh, <laughs> so I think that authorities just gave up and. You know, maybe Charles was arrested somewhere else. I mean, just based on his life, he's he probably spent the rest of his life in another prison under a different name. But I, mm-hmm. Sky, uh, I'm I mean, pulling my hair excellent out. Work. Oh, I, thank you, sir. Did you hear my entire episode? <laughs> did you hear it? Talk I about did. pulling your hair out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to know so bad though. Like. Oh. 
I, I put mean, so much listen, effort. That's, he, sometimes, I, listen, as sometimes as historians, you just, you do what you can and you got to let the rest go. Sometimes yeah. they're just, you can't know everything as much as we want to so bad. Ugh. Right. I, he was such like a, a Gilded Age Forest Gump, too. <laughs> I Man, I was just fascinated, just going down so many rabbit holes. So I hope, you know, everybody learned something this episode. We <laughs> talked there about was a lot to learn. <laughs> prohibition, yeah, all kinds of things. Woo. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, I hope you all have a wonderful day and are known for more than whiskey breath and a bad temper. <laughs> Produce more than that, please. Yes, please. All right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.